encourage you to take up your Bible with me this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. There is no more trustworthy voice in all of creation other than God speaking through his word. Let's hear God's holy word. Servants, be submissive to your masters. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. The Lord our God, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Help us to open that word this morning, to hear it. We cause that your Holy Spirit would enable us to see and behold wonderful things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think that we have to go about this passage with careful exegesis. This is not a a passage about the evils of slavery, nor is it a passage that, 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 that somehow authenticates or places a stamp of approval upon slavery. This passage is primarily of its first importance about the relationship between a Christian's life, a Christian's life, and our Savior. There is a connection, an an unbreakable connection for a believer between living the course of the Christian life in the world in which we live, in its many varied circumstances, in its varied places and with all of the varied nature of humanity and uh, we, we are different, all of us, one even against another. But, but living life as a Christian in the world in connection with, in vital communion with our Savior Jesus Christ. You cannot live as a Christian in this world if you're not connected to Christ. If you're not in union with Christ, you will not live for Christ. If you are in union with Christ, if you're bound up by faith in relationship with the living Savior, you will live in light of of His sacrifice. You'll live in communion with your Savior. So that's the argument that, that Peter intends for us to understand. This passage, like the previous passage from last week, is a call to imitate Christ. 
How can a Christian live and thrive in this world? Imitate your Savior. That's, That's the fundamental statement of this passage. How can a Christian live and thrive in the world? Well, imitate Jesus Christ. Now in verses 13 through 17, to set the context for our passage this morning, uh, Peter has said, look, this, this is the will of God. Live as servants of God. Live as a servant of God. And he says this in verse 15 as well as in verse 16. In every sphere of society, in government, and in work relationships, even servants to their masters. And and then later he'll talk about next week with the context of the family. And so he has this large view of the Christian living in in our world, in in the meta existence of of your and my cultural engagement. And then he'll boil that down into our relationship with government, and then he'll boil that down even further. Servants to those for whom they work and labor, and then he'll boil it down even further into the family structure. That's what the Apostle Peter is doing. He's taking the entirety of the human relationship to society, to institutions, to government, and even within family or within family structures. And he is saying, live as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he says, now here is how we are to go about doing it. Now, there's an apologetic and an evangelistic imperative here. He has made it explicitly clear. If you live in this way, in these these arenas of the Christian life, then there is an apologetic and evangelistic imperative that will take place, that's laid upon the believer, to offer an appropriate example of how a believer is to live in the world. Uh, What's the best way that a Christian can show the world that Christians are not anything but but biblical, nor 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 do we identify with all those cults that typically are referenced. You know what it's like. You're watching the evening news. You're watching a, a news show, and and someone says, "Well, there's this news about Christians," and so they interview someone and they stick a microphone in someone's face, and they're not in any way part of the broad evangelical community. They're on the fringes. Some bizarre cult, some odd individual, you say, I don't know what this person's even talking about. And they they think they represent me as a Christian? This is foolishness. And yet if you're living your life for Jesus Christ in a union with him, uh, you will offer to the world a picture of what a Christian ought to be. You'll offer them a a reflection of your Savior, and you'll glorify God. And more than this, your life will actually speak of the gospel and its effect in the lives of people who believe. And so Peter says what this will do, it will silence foolishness, and God will be glorified. And so there's, there's plenty of motivation for us in this context to live as a believer in the world. <clears throat> but this week, Peter singles out one particular group. Now, he's not only speaking to them, but he does speak to them. They are servants. Now, I know that there are, are other passages that use 
a word referring to servants, and that word, doulos, is predominantly defined as a slave. Well, that's not what he has in view in this passage. The the word here is very different. It it flows from that word oikos, which we all know means house or or surrounding household. And, And that's what this word comes from is servant. These are household servants. Oikete is is the derivative description. These are individuals who who serve within a a household, and yet if you can put yourself in the time of Peter, in the ancient times, when you had a household and there were those who were obligated to work for you, there were servants who worked for you, whether on a day-to-day basis or an hourly basis, daytime basis, they go home to their own families. There are others who were obligated to you by indentured service, and there were others who lived within your household up on the second floor. Now, you you know what that's like. Or, or in the inner farthest reaches where you live in your bedroom. When you welcome company into your home, you welcome them into the living room or the den. You have them sit on the couch. Or maybe some of us are still using that ancient word divan. I don't know. But then you might allow people into the kitchen And, of course, they're allowed to use the restroom, there's the living room, there's the dining room. But you wouldn't think of bringing people who have just come to visit you in your home up onto the second floor into your bedroom. You don't do that. That's private space. That's what we do. And so there are private places in our home. Well, a household servant would be in those private places. A household servant was considered a member of the family. And anything that took place in the home, in the family was in fact guided by, provided by, the circumstances were, 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 were worked toward or, or uh, labored for by these individuals, these household servants. They were closer than the typical domestic servants, and they were subject to their masters. And, and, and good masters are in view in this passage, but also unjust masters. So sometimes there were situations of corporal punishment. There were even beatings. And even there were some who were seeking to do good. And and keep in mind that these individuals to whom Peter is writing, they are now Christians. So amongst household servants that were in the northern portion of Turkey, this, this area to which Peter is writing, there were some people who had become Christians. They had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had become believers. And yet they belonged to this household. This was their their calling, their service. And so as they became Christians, perhaps they began to wonder anew about those relationships and think, I don't know if I can continue to function in this place in this way. You see, because within the household framework, if they were to offer up, if, if, if the, if, if the members of the households were not believers, uh, then then the household servants were. It was necessary that they would participate and provide the circumstances that would equip the family to worship their false gods. Perhaps they were required even to lie or deceive. Perhaps they were required to do unethical things they had no intention now as a new believer that they could ever participate in. Well, Peter singles them out and says, look, you, 
it gives a particular counsel to them relating to their obedience and relating to their interaction with their masters. They are seeking to do good, and some even as they seek to do good, perhaps telling the truth when their master wants them to lie, they're suffering for it. Perhaps they're being forced to worship false gods, and they're saying, I I can no longer worship this god, these deities, these family ancestors. We don't know the particular circumstances of any individuals, but certainly some of them are being beaten, receiving corporal punishment for their engagement in doing good. And maybe they're thinking, I, I need to change my circumstances. I need to leave. I need to run away. Break my contract. And Peter says, look, <clears throat> whatever you do, be subject to your masters with all respect or literally fear. I think it's a reference to verse 17 where Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And he's saying fundamentally, be subject to these human institutions for the sake of your fear of God. He tells them to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. And he tells them that the reason why they can do this, the reason why they ought to do this, is because they need to be mindful of God. Now, mindful is a word that's been overworked in recent years in our in our own society. Mindfulness is something that has seeped its way into corporate structure, into corporate rests, into corporate retreats, into hospitals, into nursing care, into chaplaincy, even into the church, into Bible study groups. I'm not necessarily uh, offended with the idea of mindfulness. In fact, that's uh, maybe your translation uses a different word, but it's, it's in, in the Bible simply to be conscious of certain things and or conscious of certain persons. And so when Peter uses that word here, and it's in, in my Bible, it's, it's um, uh, the idea of consciousness. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. I know that in the New American Standard Bible, it said in 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 uh, pardon me in the ESV English Standard Version, uh, the word mindfulness is used. The word is literally conscience or to be conscious. And so Peter is saying, look, you can endure under unjust treatment. You can endure through these things, even when you are in trying to do good and to honor God, and you you suffer for it. You can do this because as a Christian, we are to live continually mindful of God. In other words, conscious of God while thinking about God with an appropriate and biblical idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness in the world says it's a mental state that needs to be achieved when focusing one's, uh, when focusing one's awareness, pardon me, it's a mental state achieved when focusing one's awareness on the present moment with calm acknowledgement of one's feelings and thoughts and sensations. This flows from Eastern mystical religions, of course. We understand that. So, in, in, in essence, the idea is you empty your mind of all things, of all beliefs, of all commitments, of all uh, predispositions, 
and simply curiously observe one's feelings, one's sensations, one, one's surroundings. In other words, emptiness is the pathway to consciousness. But biblically, that's not the case. When we empty our mind, we are left with very little sensation except the embrace of sin and distraction. Mindfulness in Scripture is to fill up our minds with God, a sense to be conscious of God in the excellence of a character, of his salvific work, of his redeeming grace, to think upon his presence, to consider his character, as we talked about this last Wednesday evening in Bible study, to think deeply upon God. And so Peter is saying, look, be submissive to your masters, even when you suffer unjustly. Do this, and you'll find the way that you can do it is if you think, you labor to think and to be conscious of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, <laughs> that's awfully difficult. I have a dear friend who works in a nursing home, our dear friend Arnold. And often he's stymied by people who give him a hard time and even say hateful things. And often I, I motivate him, brother, the Lord sees your service. And all of us, I think, in function in, in various systems and family systems and in, in relationships and organizations where we are struggling with the structure, with people, with co-workers, with requirements placed upon us and an overwhelming uh, uh, requirement of our time. And I think if we are conscious of God, his character, and conscious of this one very thing, that he sees us. Twice Peter says this. This is a gracious thing in the ASV or in the uh, in the New American Standard. He says, <clears throat> "For this finds favor. For this finds favor." And he says this twice. In verse twenty and verse nineteen or eighteen. This finds favor with God. When a Christian suffers for the sake of obeying God in a godless relationship or a circumstance that's trying, God approves of the believer's person, believing person's godly response. He uses the opportunity, frankly, to give greater grace to the one who is suffering. And so if we'll stop in the midst of trial and suffering when being treated unjustly and we begin to be conscious of God, of his approval of our work and our labor, if we have the approval of God, are we not motivated to serve and to go to the depths of what humanity needs for us to do? There's a wonderful motivation here for those who are suffering and working as household servants, perhaps slaves, but likely servants, who are suffering, who are having a difficult time being a believer in a very difficult context, an oppressive one where everyone is constantly watching and there is 24 hours of constant pressure. And Peter says, be conscious in your mind of God and be conscious of his approval and his favor over you as you serve. 
Well, how can all of us have this approach to all the many varied circumstances of life? Peter will draw all of us into this passage because not all of us serve in particularly this way as household slaves or servants. But but nonetheless, he does draw in all others in what he says in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. He has said this earlier in the same context multiple times. So I think what Peter has in mind here is the audience to whom he's writing. Strangers and aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Cappadocia, Bithynia. Strangers and aliens, people who are believers living in varied contexts and with varying circumstances. And he makes a summary argument of living life in such a way that we echo Jesus Christ. And there's a summary argument for all flowing from Christ and his suffering that takes place or that we see in verses 21 through 25. He's going to say three things here for us this morning as it relates to Jesus and his suffering and what you and I are to do in response. And he says it, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So the first thing that we see here in this passage is, Christ suffered and did not commit sin. And so the exhortation for you and for me is, in your and my suffering, do not sin. Christ suffered and he did not sin. And so the exhortation for us is, in your suffering, do not sin. Now, how is it possible for you and for me to sin in suffering? Maybe we are suffering with adverse circumstances. Maybe we are struggling through relationships where it has been a real challenge to get along, where people are mistreating us and are misrepresenting us, saying things about us that are untrue. Sin and suffering takes many forms. Bitterness, anger against God, doubt, anxious thoughts, fear of future events, anger and hatred against others in return, revenge, gossip, morbid self-pity, neglect of spiritual things, complaints, indignation. You know those inner questions that say, why me? And Peter says, well, he suffered for you and he left you an example. He suffered for you. And he left you an example. Are there, are there any more soul-consoling words in the entirety of Scripture than what Peter has just said? Since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. There is so much that is bound up in those words, for you. He suffered for you and he left you an example. To this you and I have been called. And he says this repeatedly throughout this, these two chapters. This is your Christian calling. And, and we, we, we really struggle with the idea of what is my purpose as a Christian? How am I to live a purpose-filled life? I want to live a purpose-driven life. There was a recent, uh, oh, about 15 years ago, there was 15, 20 years ago, there was a recent book and 
and people were buying it in droves, millions of people, believers and unbelievers alike, the purpose-driven life. And the idea was that all of a sudden people had discovered a newfound purpose and a sense of what God was calling them to do in the world. That tells me that if people are buying into that scheme so readily, it means that they're not reading the Bible. Because the Bible is crystal clear as to what the Christian is to do and to live in the world. Now, I read that book too, but, but I never really bought into, I never at all bought into its, its, its approach. The idea is somehow that each and every one of us needs to discover our own internal, unique, discoverable purpose, and then to live in the light of that purpose for the rest of our lives. Now, God may give you a different calling. He may give you different gifting. He may equip you with husband or wife or not. He may give you many children. He may give you a different occupation. We all differ in many different ways. And our specific calling with relationship to our our occupation, our family obligations, our extended family obligations, they may differ, all of us. And so we may have find that we may have a differentiation of purpose amongst all of us, but, but there is a fundamental purpose to which you have been called, dear friend, as a Christian. One issue of primacy above all others. You may say, well, I'm equipped to repair airplanes and this is my calling. I'm, my calling is to care for people in a healthcare setting. My calling is to raise a family. My calling is to simply provide for my family by whatever means I have the, have the opportunity for. My calling is to be a godly wife. You may say all those things, and all those things are relevant, but there is an issue that is above all of them, and it remains above all of them, and always will be until the end. And that is, you've been called to live a life that mirrors that of the Lord Jesus Christ, to trace out the entirety of your life and to follow the example of Jesus. Peter will actually use a grammatical word that refers to tracing. Do you know what tracing is? It's when you have a picture, a, a, a vivid picture on, in the background, and you place a white thinner sheet over it, or other colors for that matter, but, but you, it's a lighter sheet that accepts something of the, the image from behind it through. And so you can, you can trace a face or lettering. My wife does that for the pictures that she makes, and my daughter, Elena, does that with the various pictures of people and faces, and she'll trace out their outline of their face. It's always a, an interesting thing to me. I can never trace that well. But Peter is saying, look, trace your life and the complexity of all of your decisions and, and days. Trace your life after Jesus Christ. In other words, take the... Take the, the Take your life, place it over the image of Christ, and then carefully, thoughtfully trace out your life in the direction that Christ's life has been illustrated for us. This is the way to avoid sin when we suffer. He suffered for us and he left us an example. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is not the only passage that commands us to follow the example of Christ. John 3.13.15 I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Jesus tells his disciples. Philippians 2.5-3 Have the same mindset 
as Christ Jesus. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 1 John 6, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the Christian has a duty in dependence upon the Holy Spirit with the strength of Jesus Christ and the calling of God the Father to trace out our lives carefully in the image of our Savior. Now I know this is an impossible task one that we are not equipped for, in and of ourselves. And yet God, the Holy Spirit, as at work continually in us, sanctifying us, remaking us after the image of Jesus Christ, imparting the words of Christ continually to us, and Christ is always present with us and engaged in his mediatorial work for us. And so while depending upon the Godhead, Yes, I can trace out my life, increasingly so after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is your calling. That is your purpose. You and I, we, we look at our lives, we want purposeful employment, we want godly children, we want a meaningful marriage, we want a godly husband or wife, we want a meaningful life that makes sense. Follow the example of your Savior. We want something bigger, something more self-promoting, something more self-glorifying. Well, God may not give that to you. His intention is that you would glorify his son. That you would not receive the glory, but Jesus will. That when people look at you, they will not praise you for the excellence of your character. That God's intention is that he he would lift up the Savior in you. That when people look at your life, they would see a tracing of Jesus rather than your own image. There's so many expectations that people in our society have of you and of me. We feel constant pressure to be with society and culture and others our age, social media, even our closest relationships expect of us. Peter tells us, live consciously, mindfully of God, his shepherding care and oversight. Follow his example. Trace your life by his. I'll tell you, Peter opens up Isaiah 53 in this passage here, and and he shows us the life of Christ in verses 21 through 25, what Jesus did for you and for me. I, I want to tell you this morning, you're not going to be conformed to the image of your Savior if all you ever do is binge on YouTube and television, and your favorite series, and the internet. You have to open the Word. You have to open up the Word of God. You have to be often in that Word. You have to open it and meditate over it day and night. You have to delight in the things that you read there, more than you delight in other things that pique your interest. You have to be a man or a woman of God who loves the Word of God. You're not going to become more Christ-like when you've got your head in your phone or on your computer. There's a place for that. I'm not, I'm not complaining against those things. There's a place for relaxation. There's a place for self-entertainment at the end of a long day. 
But in comparison to your Bible reading, how much time are you spending doing those things versus reading the Word of God? Immersing yourself in the Word of God. You will become more godly as you open up His Word. And if you neglect His Word, what does that tell you about your progress in godliness? Second thing we see in this passage is that Christ Christ entrusted Himself to God. Peter says that. While being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When he was reviled, when he suffered, when he was threatened, when he was wronged and beaten, persecuted, lied about, sought for death, sold for silver, when he was spoken of heretically, when he was misquoted, when his words were used against him, when he was ridiculed, when he was hated, what did he do? He continued to entrust himself to him, literally, to the one who judges justly. I don't know if you remember, I'm dating myself, but in the 80s there was a show that I was allowed to watch called The People's Court. And Doug Llewellyn would stand there and he would interview the people at the end of the show. And Judge Wapner was up there. He'd make a decision about your case in his black robe, white hair. And Doug Llewellyn would end the whole thing and he would say, look, If you're in a dispute with another party and you can't seem to work things out, don't take the law into your own hands. You take them to court. Peter is saying, when you're in dispute and you're suffering and there's contention and difficulty, and when your circumstances are working against you, you don't take people to court. You consign yourself. You give yourself wholly through prayer to the God who is the one who preserves and keeps you. He is the shepherd and the overseer of your souls in verse 25. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You know, Jesus is the head. We like to think that we are CEOs of our experience. I am the chief executive officer of my life. I am the master of my universe. Well, That's not the case. You're not the boss. You're not the sovereign. You're not the king. You're not the queen. You're not the one. God alone is the one. You're not running your life. There are circumstances far beyond your control. You're not the one who is ordering out your days, even though each day you get up with an intention and a plan. But the Bible says man plans, makes the plans in his heart, God is the one who brings them to fruition. We like to think that we are shepherding ourselves carefully and really the rest of the world, all they need is to follow our example. We think that we are sovereign. We think that we are overseers. We are charged with the duty of caring for ourselves. You are not the master of your destiny. God alone is. He is the overseer. He is charged with the duty of seeing that you and I, we live rightly. We live godly. He is our guardian and our superintendent, as it were. And so we are day by day in the midst of our circumstances, and especially when we are suffering and we are hurting and we've been depressed for nine months, or when we're struggling with physical illness that will not let us go, or when we find that we've got another one on top of all the others we're already suffering with, or when our circumstances get worse and worse 
And worse, at work, we are to give ourselves wholly unto God and say, Lord, I am yours, direct my steps. The entirety of my life is to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. So whatever happens here, make sure you do that. He is the overseer and the shepherd. And so all that we can do is to simply look to him and say, Shepherd, like a good and careful shepherd, lead me. Guide me into safety. Keep me in your fold. And when I go astray, grab that crook and pull me back into the path. Only don't take me away from your shepherding care. Don't let me wander aimlessly. Thirdly and finally, Christ bore our sins and healed our wounds. When you encounter suffering, put sin to death and pursue godliness. I think sometimes we use trying circumstances as an excuse for sin. We can have a bad attitude about life and and we can treat others badly. Well, because I'm going through real difficulty. If I'm suffering, you're all going to have to suffer with me. Sometimes we feel broken. We feel that our lives have not turned out the way that we would have liked. And we, when we encounter suffering or when we're reviled or when we suffer, when we're tempted to sin, when we feel that we are never going to be what we ought to be, when all we are is a disappointment to God, our Father, when all our best is insufficient or worthless, we need to remember something. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. When I feel broken, when I feel I'll never be right, when you feel that nothing will ever be healthy, that no good day will ever come, You need to be reminded that the brokenness of your life has been healed. It doesn't mean that God is going to take away all the circumstances in which we suffer bodily. But it does mean that there is a different circumstance and and a different end to which your life is now flowing. You now live within the framework of the covenant of grace. God is now guardian overseer of your life. There is a newfound purpose coursing through Every circumstance that occurs in your life, none of it's purposeless. It all serves to glorify God. And in the end, God approves of that life. And he gives grace. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That brokenness has been healed. Your straying, wandering, aimless life is over. That emptiness is gone. You have died to sin and He has equipped you for righteousness. It is your calling. It is your calling and it is repeated a couple of times within our passage here this morning that we are to be people who live with the imprint of the cross of Jesus Christ continually on ourselves. So that when we go out into the world and we begin to live life and I go to the convenience store and I go in to buy a stick of a package of gum and a Dr. Pepper. I, I need to have this stamp placed upon me that, that well, it is placed upon me if I've come in faith to Christ, that, that the aroma of Christ who offers himself for the sins of all who believe in him 
so that they might have eternal and everlasting life, that aroma needs to be exuded from me in the way in which I carry myself, in my attitudes, in my conduct, and in the way in which I endure through life. Such that mouths who would complain are stopped up so that their foolishness is is rebuked, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be seen in you and me, and so that I can function and live when I feel like my mind is going insane and my body is breaking down. So in spite of all those things, if I know that Jesus gave himself for me, if I know that God's grace is at work in my life, if I know that my Father approves of my life purposely lived, conscious of him with the intent that the gospel of Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ would be stamped upon my life. And surely I can live through the worst of circumstances, can't I? Can't you? I can put up with people calling me names, treating me unjustly. I can put up with yet another day of awakening, whether raining or sun shining, to sorrow, to difficulty, to anxiety and fear and depression. I can awaken and I can live if I know that my God has placed favor upon my life and considers my days lived out conscious of him favorably, graciously. And if the aroma of Christ and of his cross is seen in me, then surely we can live. There's a wonderful song. It's an untitled hymn by Chris Rice. And I'll leave that as the last word. He says, come to Jesus and live. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Raise your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus and live. Now your burdens lifted and carried far away and precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus and live. And like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. Don't be, and remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus and live. Sometimes the way is lonely and steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus and live. Dear suffering brother or sister this morning, I I urge you to have a thoroughgoing persuasion that nothing befalls you by chance, but that everything happens from the benevolent hand of of a merciful God. You need to have a firm belief that all the occurrences, however adverse and cross to your desires, are consistent with the justice, wisdom, and goodness of God, so that we cannot reasonably complain of our circumstances. You need to have a full satisfaction of mind that all, even the most bitter and sad accidents do by God's purpose tend and conduce to our good and the glory of his Son, our Savior. We need to resign our minds and our wills and to submit to the will of God with the suppression of all rebellious sentiments in ourselves that complain against his providence. And we need to have a continual hopeful confidence in our God for the alleviation of our circumstances, of our afflictions, and to give thanks day by day that under his grace, each day, he has enabled us to live 
under all of them. Dear brother and sister, live consciously, conscious of the cross, and glorify God in all the varied circumstances of your life. How can a Christian live? By living in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that you would help us as Christ who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in him. We pray that though we are sinners and we sin continually, Lord, we pray that you would keep us from reviling when we are reviled. And when we suffer, not to make threats, but to always entrust ourselves to you. Because you judge righteously and you will make all things right in the end. The day of reckoning is coming when we will reckon and the tracings of our lives will be lifted up and examined fully. We pray that you would help us to trace our lives carefully after Christ. We pray that you would enable us to look to him who himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So help us, Lord, to do this. Thank you for your healing. Thank you for bringing us back, even though we were straying like sheep. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.